0: for the first episode of our book club. This is a, a short podcast series that we're going to run like a bit of a book club. I have some great guests lined up for each of the book chapters, and we'll talk about the chapters together. I hope that all of you enjoy the conversations and inspires you to more conversations. I'm just really so excited to engage with this book and with discussions and conversations about how we move beyond self-care and how we lead a systemic approach to well-being for educators. So without further ado, we'll start with our first session, session one, which is all about the why, why well-being matters. And I have a group of friends and colleagues here with me to get us started and so i'll introduce you to them so you'll know a little bit more about them just because it's the order that i have it here i will start with dr brendan Kofsky. he was a former secondary school teacher in bc and his research focuses on adolescent boys' relationship with masculinities and emotions. He's passionate about many things, including social-emotional learning, social justice, and helping foster healthy and healing relationships within oneself and others. Brendan, I, uh, this is kind of a two-part introduction, so I started with a little bit about you, and thank you for keeping it brief. I asked all our guests to do that. You know, probably could have gone on long and for a much longer time about all the different things. But my second part my question for you is just to tell people what connects you here, connects you with the book, with me, with this topic, whatever you want.
1: Yeah, thanks, Gail. There's probably two things. I'd say that when I was doing my master's in special education, that's when I really got interested in students with, diagnosed with emotional and behavioral disorders. And I found out that teachers in British Columbia, but more widespread than that, the types of students that they are most stressed about or that pre-service teachers feel most incompetent to teach are students with emotional and behavioral disorders. And that's probably primarily because of the classroom management piece and how much that impacts all the other learners in the classroom. So the fact that 80% of them also are boys is kind of what led me into the research about masculinity. And so I'd say that is kind of one area within special education where there's such high attrition rates. And so a book like yours that talks about the self-care and the support for educators, administrators in the systems that they care about, but sometimes don't receive support from as much as they need. That's one area that I think connects me to this book. Um, and the other thing is that, like, my big thing is about teaching social emotional skills and learning to students. And I think that as much as education systems are moving towards that, at the end of the day, one of the most powerful ways to teach students is to model that. And if teachers are having a sordid relationship with their own emotional and well-being and mental health, that's going to impact their ability to actually demonstrate regulation skills in real time. So yeah, so one of my ways of looking at this book is how can we support teachers and educators and then the trickle-down effects, which you mentioned in your book, that impacts students' emotional well-being as well.
0: Thanks, Brendan. That was great. I wish I could speak as calmly as you do. I need to uh, do a little regulating for myself. That was lovely. Thank you. Our next guest introduced, is Vanessa White. Vanessa is currently a district principal for safe and healthy schools in the BC school district. She's worked in K-12 as a teacher, a counsellor, and has focused much of her career on social emotional learning, educator wellness, and resilience. Outside of work, she enjoys gardening, cooking, yoga, and hours by the beach, getting her property ready to host wellness retreat. Oh my goodness, even just saying that just makes me think, oh, how nice would that be? (laughs) Vanessa, your turn. What brings you here? Some of it's in there. Some of it, the connections are there.
2: Yeah, I guess probably the the biggest connection with you and your book, we we go back a ways. We met as members of the SELBC committee that would meet once a month to look at how are we moving social-emotional learning forward for students. I think we quickly came to that realization that while it's super important to be teaching these skills to students, it's really difficult to do if we don't also address SEL for teachers and the adults in the system first. And so I love the fact that your book really focuses on the adults, because they, they are the foundation, they are the people that are delivering this incredible education to all of these students. So for me, probably the biggest connection was going through a bit of a I don't know if I would say a self-care crisis, but certainly feeling pretty burnt out and and feeling overwhelmed with my job at times. And making some moves making some changes and shifting some things. When I read the book, a lot of what was in there, I could relate to. I could relate to a lot of the stories of the principals rushing home late at night, then having to work longer hours and spending their weekends. So it it connected to me personally quite a bit. I'd like to think I'm sort of at the other end, trying to do something about it now and trying to make a difference and trying to give back to the system. I'm near the end of my career. I'm looking at ways to do things differently and give back to teachers and administrators that may be struggling or maybe not struggling doing really well and just needing a bit of a break my goal is eventually to run some wellness retreats and hopefully to work with gail some more
0: yay i was hoping you're gonna add that at the end Yeah, thank you for mentioning SELBC, one of the great connectors and some amazing educators working there and connecting this across our province or trying to move it out that way. And also, yeah, just that personal connection. I think that's true for all of us, right? Mm -hmm. Is that, yeah, when we think about this stuff, we, we often start with the students and then we make that shift and say, hey, uh, the adults, uh, In the building, too. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, actually, me. (laughs) Yeah, and the other adults. (laughs) But yeah, Yeah. me, because that lifelong practice part. Now I want to introduce Shirley. Uh, Dr. Shirley Giroux has worked with learners from early childhood to post secondary. She's a registered clinical counselor and the school counselor for Bailemont, BC, where she works half time at the elementary school and half time at the secondary. In 2021, Shirley completed certification as a compassionate systems leadership master practitioner through the Center for Systems Awareness at MIT. Based in part on her PhD research, Shirley works on behalf of school-wide, particular educator well-being, in a variety of settings across Canada and beyond.
3: Well, I came back to Vail Mount. I went to high school here Uh, I spent a couple of my high school years here my dad and my sister still live here and I moved back here in 2019 in part because of a project that you, Gail, were involved with which was the Rural Mental Health Grant. That's not the specific name and I know for Vailmont in particular it was focused on educator well-being or adult well-being. I had just earlier that year finished my doctorate looking at Teachers Resilience with BC Teachers and had discovered, you know, Vailmont needed a school counselor. It was a full time mental health support position and yeah that that project was happening so it just seemed like it was okay yeah this is where i'm i meant to go back here back to Bailmount.
0: you're living and working in your community all right Thanks,
3: all of you. Excited
0: to delve into our first chapter here. Uh, You guys actually get the introduction, too, because you're the first ones. This is the the why, why well-being matters. And I was sort of reviewing it a little bit today. And it's such a good launch into all the other chapters that it made me want to dig into things more. I told you guys the question that I was going to ask, and I'll have to say that I I got it from from Googling good book club questions. And this one really stuck out for me. The question is really just, where did you put your sticky note? Where did you highlight, if you're the highlighter type person? And the idea is really just to get at what resonated for you. Like, what were the things that stood out for you? So why don't we go in a different order this time and start with Vanessa? Okay.
2: I'm a, I'm a highlighter person.
0: Okay. <laughs> and I, I have to say,
2: I think the big one, one of the big ones that stood out for me in this first section on why I loved the fact that you included some data around the business case because that's often where I find we end up needing to push in order to get this work moved forward. It's such a nebulous topic in terms of being able to prove that what you've done has actually made a difference because you can't really unprove that you didn't make a difference. Do you know what I mean? It's it's almost impossible to to show that it worked because the opposite feels like it's happening anyways you know where we've got people struggling we've got people feeling like their self-care could use some support and a boost and we're always kind of feeling like gosh is anything we're doing working you know it's still happening i always choose to think of what would be happening if we weren't doing this for you know it could be a lot worse right things could be a lot more challenging i think The fact that you included the information about the business case, included some research around, yeah, actually there is research we can do to show that this work matters and that it does work and it does have an impact on society. I I think that's a really important foundational piece. That was probably the big one for me in the why, and maybe it's because of the role that I'm in. You know, I, I have to make a lot of decisions around budget and I have to make decisions around where I'm going to be putting resources. Resources are always limited. And so having some data can really help in those tough decisions Around do I put in this program? Do I put in that program? Am I spending money on wellness? Am I spending money on something else? Right. Yeah. So having that data really can support making those tough decisions.
0: Yeah, I think you're right on. But as I think it's important, I also wonder if we don't we kind of feel a little uncomfortable about talking about the business case because you know it, it's about wellness and it should be authentic in that sense. We should do it just because it's a good thing to do, and yet you're absolutely right. The business business case actually really matters. And that's been one of the biggest learnings for me is that we need people on board and let them know the value of it in all of those different ways, right? If it was only about the business case, that maybe wouldn't be enough, but it has to have that included, right? Because people are making important decisions about budgets. And in some ways, although we have all the data to show it, it is a new way of thinking, right? like, you know, is money going to staff wellness? but we have to talk about it right yeah. and we have to what be able to get that information to the people whose job it is to make those decisions right yeah. so if you know the people making the financial decisions don't know that information then how can they make the best decisions that way
2: yeah and you know in your heart that it's working and you know in yeah. your heart it's the right thing to do but explaining that saying, but it's in my heart, <laughs> Just sometimes this isn't enough for those people that are in charge of those, those big financial decisions. So being able to say, no, actually, there's research that shows we're saving this much money in the long term, it can carry some clout. Yeah.
3: Even just connecting that to I know, there's also research on uh, teacher retention, and how financially, it, the costs are less if you can retain a person in an organization, it's, it extends far beyond education, then continually, you know, searching, hiring, training people, for these roles. And I I know for myself, I have a particular connection to rural and remote locations, and in those settings in particular, I know that it's not just here in the North that we have a shortage of teachers, but I think it's particularly salient nowadays to think about, okay, what are we able to do to better support the teachers who are already in these places to help them to stay in communities where we traditionally have had a hard time finding people to come and work, let alone stay? And we can't do that without addressing these systems-level needs, right? Without making it, helping, helping people have that sense of community, helping to provide that sense of community and connectedness. When people often are, they're moving here from Ontario, you know, far away from friends and family, possibly into a smaller place than they ever imagined even existed. So how do we do that work? And I think the financial implications touches on that as well.
0: Yeah, definitely. Brendan, anything to add to that before we move on
1: to the next one? Well, it reminded me of something that I just thought of while you were reading the book and this conversation now is kind of how backwards it seems that new teachers are often thrown a dog's breakfast of what to teach. And like all the courses, whereas once you establish yourself, then you kind of be like same course, you've taught it again and again. And I just think, yeah, on one hand, it's kind of the old school mentality of do your time and then you can relax it after. But it's also like you get really highly motivated teachers right out of school and give them things that they might not be as expert in and just get them to martyr themselves right away from the get go. It's not the type of approach that I think is healthy is a a nebulous word sometimes, but one that probably decreases or increases attrition rates and decreases retention rates as well. Mm
0: It's so interesting with things like that. And that's a perfect example of some of the things that are just the way we've done things, right? So it's not like anyone's trying to do something that's going to make things harder for new teachers or, you know, none of that. It's just the system that we come from. And because we haven't really just taken the time to think that through, like there could be a lot better ways to do some of these things that could embed well-being into our practice at that systems level. That sometimes it's just that starting a conversation, right, that says, oh, well, why do we do it like that? Is that the way it has to work? And there's a lot of those kind of examples, because we have a system that's you know, existed and this sort of that traditional uh, system and way of being that when we just start to talk about it through that lens of well-being, we may make different decisions or at least try different things, right? That's what I love about the conversation around that. Thanks for that example. It was a really good one.
3: I think the piece that stood out it was actually in the introduction and just on that idea of how do we nurture and sustain teachers in their work. And then kind of connected to that how do we build those systemic structures to foster that well-being and to help people stay connected to the pieces that likely brought them into teaching in the first place. I know that teaching is one of those professions that is often seen as having a vocational aspect to it. You know, people feel like it's something that they're drawn or called to do in some way, shape, or form, not necessarily staying with the same area of teaching. I know for myself, I started as a secondary science teacher. And then actually, Brendan, when you were talking about your research, it reminded reminded me. Um, When I started my master's in counseling, I had a, I think he was about a year and a half, two years old. No, he was one. My son was one when I started my master's. At the time when I had him, I had started doing all this reading and research on basically I've never been a boy. I've never had a son. What are some ways that I can help nurture his emotional landscape, you know, so that I am able to support him in becoming kind of like a whole human. And that's what really drew me into this. The area of infant mental health and then caregiver support because you can't provide the kinds of attention to children's needs if you're asking it from caregivers, whether it's their parent, their daycare provider, their teacher. If if those people are struggling and under-resourced, they're going to do their best to provide that and to try and provide that because again, teaching and, and parenting to, a, to an extent, you know, they do have these really strong kind of like a calling sort of an aspect to it in some ways, that vocational aspect. So when you were talking It it reminded me of that. And that's what really drew me into this whole area of of educator resilience and well-being was how do I raise a son who's a decent human being, you know, who is comfortable with emotions? And I don't know if I've been successful. He's 16. He seems like a pretty nice guy. (laughs) But that idea of purpose and being able to stay connected to that sense of purpose in the work that we do as educators whether it is as a, as a classroom teacher at any level or a support teacher, school counselor. I've been a principal in that role there. Same thing, you know, how do I support these people, the adults in this building, so that collectively we can have this environment where we do feel cared for, each of us feels cared for, and that you know it when you walk into the school. I wanted my school to be one of those places where you could walk in and you knew that, oh, yeah, this is a pretty good place to be. So long story short, that's what stuck with me was how do we create and sustain these spaces where people are able to be connected to those those deeper, those personal reasons that they might have, which again are also, I know from my own research, that is that also then tied to well-being, right? That sense of vocation is very much connected to a sense of overall well-being. So that's what stuck with me.
2: I connected a lot with what you said, Shirley, about starting your master's when your kids were little and really finding that passion for social, emotional learning and wellness through that master's program. I did a similar route. I started out in secondary science and ended up taking my master's just after my son was born and uh, took a long, long time because I ended up having two sons. It was a good long seven, eight year process to get the master's done, but it was worth it. And just loving those topics and that piece of education, you know, that holistic look at how are we educating which was so different than how I had been trained you know our teacher ed was very content-based especially secondary science it was very know your subject well and teach your subject well Mm -hmm. and it wasn't until I switched and went to elementary and realized there was a whole different way of looking at, at education that you can teach more to the person and looking at that social and emotional piece just as well as our content piece and how do you weave those two things together
1: Yeah, when I was listening to the conversation and hearing about like feeling your way through the book, I always tend to go towards like a gendered lens of viewing like how our feelings often viewed in workplaces and often it's associated more with the feminine and thinking more with the masculine and administrators proportionally for how many educators are women that proportionally it's like 50-50 in BC for administrators being men and women even though I think it's, I can't remember the stat off the top of my head. But anyways, I was just thinking about the start of this conversation talking about the shrewdness to talk about the business aspect of social emotional support, support for staff and educators, but also kind of the essence of can we cognitively logic our way to our hearts and to our bodies and to feeling. And so that I think sometimes that is a path towards our bodies and our hearts, but I wonder how much skepticism or biases ingrained in people that don't want to be too touchy-feely. This is too touchy-feely for me to get to that place. Maybe it's not as action-oriented as you can like it's just not doing enough for me or it's kind of getting in the way of what I can do if I just use my mind at it your book really highlights the importance of the body which I don't know if it's my sticky note time yet. I can say that
0: yes (laughs) it's your sticky note time
1: so yeah I'll jump into that is that like one thing I didn't realize getting a PhD is I didn't realize how many people reach out to you to read their books and to do something with their books so I've been doing that more than I ever thought but this was actually really enjoyable to read and I genuinely mean that there was lots of aspects but the one that i think and have a bias towards that like i think is at the root of so many ailments in society i don't think you ever used the word but you were definitely talking about it was like embodiment the importance of getting back to our bodies and our nervous system so the parts about the stress cycle and the contagion effect i highlighted what i think is like the key thing for so many things but the key thing that I thought in your chapter is at first you have to notice it happening. And what you're referring to there is noticing what's going on in your nervous system. As a teacher who's trying to survive and like do everything, like you're not stopping to take notice. I was like, how, when I was a first teacher, like how do people go to the washroom as a teacher? How do they eat their lunches? Like I could not find time to do those things. And so we're denying our, our needs. The one thing that um, I can't remember which anecdote it was in the story, but someone said that like, they're so used to the chaos And one of the things that I've learned in my own therapy, as well as I know this from research articles as well, is that we can get addicted to stress, we can get addicted to chaos and our nervous systems recognize chaos as something familiar and that can be go back developmentally if we were born in a chaotic environment or like raised in a chaotic environment where that feels normal. And then if you don't have that chaos, it can feel unsettling. And I think it's a miracle that I took a paternity leave when my first daughter was born, but I randomly did. And I learned through that experience is that I suck at resting. I know I was hands-on with my child as well, but I also like was just busying myself with all these projects. Cause like, what do I do if I'm not doing, I don't feel like I'm productive. And then it's like, Oh, can we go back a bit further? Like oh, I feel like I'm not enough if I'm not producing something in this way. And so there's so many different layers to look back at it, which is why your essence of the first step is noticing it happen. And so like noticing in your body what is going on takes time away from the stress and it's hard work. That's where a lot of the work is. And I was retroactively thinking back on that quote. the start of your chapter, you used, I think it was the same person, although you tricked the audience into thinking they're different principles about like a stressful situation coming home from work and then a non-stressful situation. And it's like, oh, I, even as reading that, like I felt like, oh yeah, I know what this stress is like when this principle is in the stress. And then when you describe the relaxing one, it's like, I actually felt my body like, oh yeah, this is the type of life I would like to have with my family. Like that's the type of career path. I want to go and not be addicted to stress.
0: I wonder if other people could relate to one more than the other like that, right? Or yeah, the story comes from someone who like, says that these, both these days occurred in their life, right? And, but I wonder if there's one that is sort of way more like, oh, this is what, where I really am most of the time. And then the other one is like, here's what I'd really love to have, mm. you know, that kind of thing. Or there's some people the opposite, right? They're, they're most of the days are, are that sort of calm, things are sort of flowing well, and then they sometimes have the stressful days. It will be interesting to see plays out for people. But the other thing that sort of struck me when you were talking there, Brendan, is that thing that I think about it all the time is how so many of these practices, like simply noticing what's happening in your body, are both so simple and so difficult. And that sort of message around that, really, it's a simple practice, right? Like to notice What's happening in your body, but it isn't simple. Like it takes time and it takes effort and it takes practice. And yeah, so when you said, you know, it's hard to do, I could relate to that but also on the other hand, it's not a really, I don't know even how to describe it.
1: It's accessible, like our breath is accessible to us and we can breathe in any moment.
0: Yeah, that's maybe the, a better way to say it, right? It's accessible to us and with practice, it, it, it's not that complex. On the other hand, it's hard to do and uh, when you were talking to about the story where the person wasn't even really noticing, they're just in that stress cycle, um, I wonder how many people in education get into that, right? Yeah, when you said because. addicted to stress for me
2: it's not so much an addiction it was more an immune like I was immune to what my body was saying it you know I, I just kept going and going and didn't like the way I was feeling but couldn't take the time to become self-aware enough to be able to say this isn't good you know it was sort of like I just compartmentalized that off and that was my body that was my physical stuff and it's not going great right now but I'm super busy and I'll deal with my physical stuff later not even realizing that what I was dealing with with the busyness was actually causing a lot of the physical ailments you know that's physical and social and emotional piece all winding together that took some learning. And and it seems so basic. Now I think, oh my goodness, how could I not have known that? But at the time, it felt very separate. I think a lot of our kids see their health that way too. You know, they think their social emotional stuff is all kind of from the neck up and their physical is all from the neck down, right? It's very separate and they don't necessarily get the connection between what they're thinking and feeling is impacting how their physical body is acting and displaying.
1: One of my favorite pieces of research is that our bodies send nine times more signals to our brains than our brains send to our bodies. So like our bodies are sending us so many messages.
2: Yeah, I think so. As you say, that that noticing and that awareness, as simple as that is, it is a key piece. That you need to develop and you need to work at, and you need coaching to walk yourself through it. Having somebody else bring your attention to it and asking you questions and asking you to talk it through—that's a form of learning to notice and being aware. And so, I think the work that we're doing with social emotional learning in schools, having students voice their thoughts and voice their feelings and their emotions, and and giving words to what they're physically feeling, is so important. And certainly not something I ever got
1: when I was in school.
0: Which also then brings up that whole thing about the. Fact that the adults haven't necessarily been taught any of those things.
1: I don't know if I've ever uh, heard this word before, but I instantly knew what it was, and I really like that I got introduced to the term in your book. Presenteeism, not absenteeism. Educators who are present but not well. I guess you can define it better, but like educators who are there but not giving it their all or don't feel valued, so they're not. Yeah, it's not it's not, not giving it their all. It's just that they are not showing up fully, either due to capacity or willingness. Would you agree with that?
0: Yeah, and it's actually a, a human resources term. And you know, lots of HR terms I don't like, but this one I really do because it's quite descriptive. And yeah. we all, I don't know, I think we all know people who are there. And it's a self-protection kind of mode It's certainly not only an education, it's a workplace word. I just am not going to give it my all anymore, right? I'm going to be here. I'm going to do what I need to do, but I'm not connecting. I'm not doing that work with enthusiasm. And it comes as a place of of hurt, really, of feeling not valued. I just think it's a really, first of all, it's a good one to notice. But they've also done the research about how much that again going back to the thinking thing and the uh, impact financially that that actually has uh, so it has that heart impact because i mean can you imagine like being in a workplace that you just don't want to give yourself to i mean that that's hard for yourself and the other people that you're serving in in this service type industry
1: yeah i noticed this come up a lot after, after there have been a series of strikes in British Columbia, a lot of other teachers being like, you know, I'm just kind of done doing anything extra and doing things like I just I feel really burnt out and done and not what you said in the book, they don't feel valued for doing what they do. And I think going back to the financial piece is that sometimes just being compensated for our time with money is a great motivator of feeling valued. And I use one example, me and three teachers, my last year teaching before my PhD, we got $7,000 for flexible seating for our classrooms. I cannot tell you how invigorating it was like we stayed after school just like planning out all of these different things the three teachers of us having money to like make our classes like beautiful and design them the way that we want I literally wish that every teacher could have the experience of like a ten thousand dollar makeover for their classroom it was so invigorating my lesson plan like every aspect just felt enriched and then that of course passes on to students as well I know that sometimes the union doesn't want to say we don't want money for kids type equate things down to the money thing but money is there's research about like just money being compensated in terms of value and reducing stress
0: well and i won't disagree with you on the on the money great but i also think that what you're talking about your example can happen in lots of different ways even Mm. without the money right because what you're talking about is a project that was inspiring to you right And I think there's so many people that have different ideas and input, but there are people that are passionate about so many things in education that it's that ability to contribute. A good point. I think the time too,
2: though, right? It's the recognition of the value of your time and what you give and when that is noticed and when that is compensated for in whatever way. It can be money. It can be time. It can be even just a thank you. Just a recognition that you have spent time and given time freely—it's so important for keeping people from straying from being engaged. That I often think about—you know—how many jobs are there out there that would expect you to give and give and give and give of your time and not have some sort of compensation or thank you or recognition that you've given that extra time? There's very few of them that are out there, other than education. And then you throw in the whole seniority piece. I remember moving to admin. I'd been in education, I gosh, I don't even know how many years at that point. And the year I moved to admin, I was still under the cut line during the seniority cut at the end of the year. I thought, what other job where I could be in it for this many years? And I'm still in danger of losing my job every single year. And I just give and give and give and give. And it was at such odds. You keep going and you keep giving and because you are passionate about it. And it is a part of you and it's who you are. And it's so much of your person, but even... Even that can wane after a while if there's not that recognition, that thank you, that compensation in some way that what you're doing is is noticed.
0: You brought up another one of my HR words I think they need to change is that surplus word. Surplus. Oh surplus. How God. can someone, oh, how can a person be surplus? It's oh, awful. Right? It's an awful, awful process. It's I can fun. now go off onto lots of tangents yeah. like they so many. You know, back to the presenteeism word, because I think that is a really, really important one. I think we could probably all think of somebody who's been in that situation, if not ourselves, that even if just those moments of like, I'm just done with this, right? But I'm imagining now, I'm thinking about people that I know that I think have been in that situation where they're just like closing the classroom door, for instance, and not connecting outside of there. I'm just going to do this because this is safe and I'm going to do this that I know and I can do this well and whatever else is going on out there, uh, I'm just going to focus on this. Think about not only, That person. And again, I get back to that heart thing, like how imagine how that must feel for someone to have to be that protective. But then also it goes back to that contagion effect, right? What does that do to the culture of that community, of that school, of the other people around? And yeah, I imagine the new teachers, again, we started off with this conversation about the impact of people coming into a profession. And what does it look like if you come into a situation like that? I don't know. It just brings us sort of back to this whole let's talk about things like presenteeism right because Mm -hmm. no one's wanting that it gets to that whole thing about let's just start having these conversations if people are feeling that way what's going on like how can we look at that kind of stuff we see it like I think if I asked you guys or if I have a a whole group of people in education almost everyone could tell us a story about someone who was feeling that way or acting that way
3: I don't really think we've talked about that before Vanessa was saying you're also touching on teaching is also a profession that happens to be very closely bound up with identity. Teachers identify very strongly with themselves as their work as a teacher. That's not true for all professions, all lines of work. It's true to varying degrees. For teaching, it does tend to be one where identity and work are very closely intertwined. So when you do have that presenteeism, that is definitely going to be having negative repercussions on that person. I think going back to kind of what spurred this part of the conversation about money, I think often it's more, being asked, you know, what do you need? And sometimes people aren't going to have the capacity to even begin to imagine what they might need or what they might do. And in, in that case, it can be an affirming thing to say, well, I noticed that you seemed to really light up during that unit that you did with your students when you had them in the hall building catapults. I noticed that you were just like you lit up, I could tell that that's something that you really engaged with. How can I help you do more of that thing that was so obviously life affirming for you that so obviously filled." You up and gave you some of that energy back. I've also had conversations as the principal with teachers in both. You know, you need to make sure that you're coming at it from this. How can I support? It's just being aware of some of the potential power differentials is a bit of a different thing and maybe gives it a bit of a different flavor. But I think, regardless, being able to have those conversations with each other, just helping to notice the kinds of things that get us like fill our buckets, right? And sometimes it can be really hard. You know, you get into the school year and these next three months are going to. Fly by these next three months are basically 10 seconds. It can be really difficult to feel like you're getting out of your classroom, you know, to be able to notice what other people are doing and and to be able to notice even what you're doing in your own classroom. To recognize that, oh, yeah, I really appreciate and enjoy getting my kids outside. I remember a few years ago, I had a conversation with a colleague who was feeling pretty down on themselves, pretty disconnected from their practice. And it turns out that what was going on for them was they were an earlier career teacher, they really admired. A colleague's teaching style really wanted to do things in this classroom. They were kind of mentoring into a position. They wanted to do things the same way as their colleagues. They really admired their style, but there were just a few things that it meant that they weren't doing. The absence of those few things was clearly, it was taking a toll on the person. They didn't feel as connected to their practice. So we had a conversation about who are you? How can you teach who you are? How can you make sure that you have that congruence between who you are, what you value, What gets you excited? How you're going to bring that to this work? Because if you're excited, then the kids will be excited, right? And if they're not excited, at least you're enjoying it, you know? (laughs) At least someone's having a good time. But just being able to have those kinds of conversations and recognizing that this is something that's closely tied to people's identities. We all have different things that light us up. People's classrooms, it's a glorious thing that people's classrooms look different, that some kids Mm -hmm. are sitting and working quietly and others are this far removed from hanging off of a rafter. That's a really good thing because if it doesn't work for you in one class as a student, then at least you have the promise of that different setting where maybe that's the year that you really connect with something in your education career. But those aren't conversations that we tend to have a lot in education, partly because of time constraints, partly because we don't tend to put resources like time and money towards allowing those spaces for teachers and and educators to gather and just have those conversations, right?
0: So much potential, so much potential out there. Mm -hmm. Just to have the conversations, right? And, you know, the good things that are going well and the, hey, do we have to keep it doing it this way we have had some great discussions about our chapter for you if there's anything else you want to add before we kind of wrap up here anything else you want to get in there
1: go buy the book, <laughs> go <by> the book. <laughs> well, a self-promotion sucks so yeah you should do it
0: uh, i like that that's a good one uh you brought up first of all you brought up so many things that are we'll dive into more in the other chapters uh, because it is a bit of an overview connection, belonging, you know, all the different things that, that we brought up here today, but also, yeah, just being able to have this conversation. This is my hope. Yes. I hope lots of people go out and buy the book, but more so have the conversations right so that we can share these ideas and start to talk about how we can make things better for people and make some systemic change towards well-being so it just becomes kind of the way we do things and embedded in our practice not necessarily hugely difficult but you know fairly easy small practices but that do take effort all right you guys thank you so much <laughs>